good morning. Good morning. <laughs> Thank you. Take your Bible, Mark's Gospel, chapter 5. Mark's Gospel, chapter 5. It has been our passionate pursuit, as you know, this semester to promote the person and glory of Jesus Christ, who is all. One of the little statements I carry around in my Bible as a Christian and as, as a pastor is a reminder of the glory that he alone possesses. This is Peter Bain from his book called The Testimony of Christ to Christianity. He says, Christ has come. He is the light of the world. He is the revealer of the snares and chasms that lurk in darkness, the rebuker of every evil thing that prowls by night. He is the stiller of the storm winds of passion. He is the quickener of all that is wholesome. He is the adorner of all that is beautiful. He is the reconciler of contradictions, the harmonizer of discords, the healer of diseases, the savior from sin. Jesus Christ has come. He is the torch of truth, the anchor of hope, the pillar of faith, the rock for strength, the refuge for security, the fountain for refreshment, the vine for gladness, the rose for beauty, the lamb for tenderness, the friend for counsel, the brother for love. Jesus Christ has come. Jesus Christ is all. Onward, Christian, toward the yonder summit, which until mankind wears his image, there stands not an angel, not a disembodied spirit, not an abstract of ideal and unattainable virtues, but the God-man, Jesus Christ, one of a kind, Jesus the Son of God. He is all. He is worthy of your all. And this morning, what I want to invite you to do, as we consider a, another vivid gospel description of the unrivaled Savior of the world, the Son of God, I want to challenge you. My goal today is you'll not only see more clearly the one who is all, unlike any other, the one-of-a-kind Savior of the world, but to him you will give your all. He is all. But if he is all, we ought to give our all. To that end, I want you to read with me, follow with me, Mark's Gospel, chapter 5. The disciples have been chosen. They have begun to be trained and taught. Chapter 5 is all about no one but Jesus. This is about his exclusive capacity, his unrivaled ability. Last time I taught you, we taught the story of the demoniac that was uncontrollable. Now we'll look at a woman who is unhealable. Mark chapter 5. Let's actually begin with verse 21 because this is a unique story. You have a sandwich kind of an effect. You have a story that begins in verse 21, an upper crust individual and then an outcast individual kind of woven together. 
to maximize the impact and import of this one-of-a-kind Savior, Jesus only. Verse 21, And when Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered about him. So he had traveled on to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. He met this demoniac in the tombs. He healed him. Now he's come back. Great multitude gathered about him. He stayed by the seashore, obviously because of the press of the crowd. Verse 22, And one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and upon seeing him fell at his feet and entreated him earnestly, saying, My little daughter, now the parallel passages say, My twelve-year-old daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her that she may get well and live. And went off with him. And a great multitude was following him and pressing in on him. Verse 25, our focus today. And a woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years, not a 12-year-old girl, but a woman who's been struggling for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians, had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse after hearing about Jesus came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I shall get well. And immediately the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the multitude pressing in on you, and and you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this, but the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him, told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction." This is the Word of God given for our inspiration. This is the Word of God given to impact our affection. This is the Word of God given to press us toward a higher and greater motivation. This is a living picture. And what I'd like you to do today is I want you to enter into the question, why should I give my all? And if I were to title this, it would be because of people like her and because of a Savior like him. People like her and a Savior like him. That's why you ought to give your all for the one who is all. And to help you appreciate people like her, I want you to imagine with me what sits underneath the reality, the pathos Because you can read these words and not fully appreciate the weight and reality that she's enduring. I read a little book called Intimate Moments with Christ by Ken Geyer, and I want to share with you pieces of it, and I've elaborated on it to help you enter into it. I want you to picture this. I want you to imagine it. Frankly, I want you to feel it. I want you to feel it so you'll appreciate it and you'll be motivated to act because of it. Consider people like her. God only knows how much she's suffered. 
Most likely, she's lived with a bleeding uterus for 12 humiliating years. She's been labeled unclean by the rabbis and subjected to Levitical prohibitions. That's Leviticus 15, which says that if a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies shall be deemed unclean and impure. Wherever she sits shall be considered impure and unclean. Whoever touches her, says Leviticus, shall be considered unclean. She is unable to touch and to be touched. If she has family and friends, they can't touch her. She can't touch them. For 12 years, she's been untouchable. And she can't worship. She can't be because she's defiled. And by the way, this is a symbol, a picture of sin and how it corrupts and how it opposes your capacity to worship God. She cannot worship God. She can't enter into the place where God is taught about. She can't engage with the people of God. She's ostracized by the synagogue. She's orphaned by society. And she's orphaned, I think, she thinks, also by God. Surely she has prayed. Surely she has pleaded for 12 agonizing years. And God, to her, has been silent. During that time... She has felt the weight of her affliction. She's been put out of the city's back door, shoved down its steps, and for 12 years she's foraged in the side streets and alleyways for some leftovers of hope. Can you see her? Can you see her with her eyes downcast as you pass by? Can you see her self-conscious, ashamed, afraid? Can you see as she fears the condescension in your eyes, the indifference she may feel as you turn away? Most of all, can you see the fear? The fear of the gavel that you bring down on her life, your judgment. Surely she would fear the judgment that her illness is the direct result of some personal sin. Perhaps this bleeding uterus, some would guess, is the consequence of sexual sin. And there'd be whispered innuendos and perversion would be added most likely and the gossiped indictments would go on and on. You can't touch me, you think lowly of me. Twelve years I've been looking, twelve years I've been aching. And so besides the shame of the constant bleeding, she bears the burden of the stigma. She carries that weight with her everywhere she goes. Trudging from doctor to doctor, she's tried to find a place to lay her burden down. The doctors have filled her mind with hopes, her body with folk remedies. There were 11 Talmudic solutions, cures, ointments, concoctions, potions, superstitions, the ashes of an ostrich egg carried in linen on a winter day or a barley corn found in the waist of a white donkey. The solution, unending, superstitious, 
bespoke remedies, but in the end, the only thing they relieved her of was her money. Can you see her? She's destitute now. She's out of money. The doctors have admitted there's nothing they can do for her. Her life is ebbing away. The steady loss of blood over the years has taken its toll. She's anemic. She's pale. She's tired. She is very, very tired. She's tired of the shame. She's tired of the stigma. She's tired of the charlatans. She's tired of being used. She's tired of being abused. She's tired of being abandoned. She's tired of being tired. She's been sick so long she can't remember what whole feels like. God only knows how much she's suffered. Worst of all, every illusion she had about her life is shattered. Suffering has a way of doing that. It is swept away with those illusions, her dreams. She no longer dreams of marriage and family. She no longer dreams of combing the hair of her daughter or wiping the face of her son or of bouncing a grandbaby on her knee, of being taken care of in her old age, of golden memories that she can cherish. Her suffering has whisked away those dreams into little broken piles of shattered hopes. Can you see her? Can you see her with the life sucked out of her? We're not talking about a month. We're not talking about 12 weeks. We're not talking about 12 months. We're talking about 12 years. But, verse 27, after hearing about Jesus. But stories of another physician reached down to pick up the pieces of her dreams. A physician who charges no fee, a physician who asks for nothing in return, who has no hidden agenda beyond being or making a sick world well again. She has heard of this physician, Jesus. That's what verse 27 says. She heard the report about Jesus, who comes not to the healthy but to the sick, who comes not to the strong but to the downtrodden, who comes not to those who are with well-ordered lives but to those whose lives are filled with physical and moral chaos. She has heard of Jesus' success, his success among the incurables, the curing of an uncontrollable demoniac, the raising of a widow's dead son, the healing of a leper, a leper, she thinks, another untouchable, another orphan, another one taken by the scruff of the neck and thrown from society's back door, and the divine physician simply touched that disease-eaten man, and he became clean and whole. And she begins to think, if I can find this Jesus and but touch the hem of his garment, I too will be cleansed. I too might be made whole. And with that, she seeks him out. Can you see her? Can you see her on one more journey, hoping for, seeking help? despite all of the help that has not been given or has failed to come. And so with a th thin thread of faith, this frail needle of a woman stitches her way through the crowd. Her tired frame is jostled and by those clustered around Jesus. They're pressing him. 
They're brushing shoulders. They're rubbing against him. The curious, the eager, and yes, the desperate. Her tired frame is pushing in, and she pushes her empty hand through a broken seam in the crowd, and for a fleeting moment, she doesn't just touch the hem of his garment, but the word is she grabs it. Aggressive era, she grabs it out of desperation. She grabs him, clutching the corner of his garment, and Jesus is pulled back, not by the grasp of her hand so much as the grasp of her faith. Power leaves him to surge through the hemorrhaging woman, and immediately she feels different. She feels the rush of her youthful health returning, she knows, she instantly knows. And a flood of feelings comes. She releases her grasp and she's swept away in the crowd, but Jesus doesn't let her get away. He knew. When he said, who touched me, it wasn't that he didn't know. He wanted her to acknowledge what she needed to know. And although the crowd was pressing on him, her touch was different, and that touch stopped him in his tracks. How ready Jesus is to respond to the hand of outstretched faith. So, in obedience to his summons, she comes trembling, flushed with embarrassment, fear, fearful, but she comes. Can you see her? Something big has happened. I've lived in apprehension, I've lived in shame, I've lived in the shadows. I've lived without hope. I don't understand it, but I know something's happened, and now I have to face the one who understands. And obedient, she comes, flushed with embarrassment, fearful. Between the lines of her confession, I think punctuated halteringly by maybe fear and tears, the patient comes face to face with the physician. He sees her isolation. He reads her whole life. He sees the introspection. He sees her insecurity. And I want you to hear this. Verse 34, he says, and this is the only time a woman or anyone is called by this daughter. Daughter. And with those words, he gives this orphan a new home within the family of God. He not only grants her healing, he gives her her life. He changes her life. He says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your affliction. The word affliction comes from the word scourge or whip. It's used of diseases that are torturous. These 12 agonizing years, these 12 years without hope, broken, untouchable, unloved, orphaned, ostracized, unwanted, daughter, you're a part of a family. Your faith has not only made you well, sozo, not heal you, but saved you. I think what Jesus did was clearly more than heal her body. He had done that when she touched him. He was now saying, I've done more than that. Your faith in me has saved you. You're my daughter. Go in peace. Can you see her? So I ask you again, 
why should you give him your all? Because what this woman is, is what that demoniac was, a picture. A picture of people like her and people like them and people like us. I want you to consider the parallels. Why you should give, her all, give your all to Christ who is all because of people like her, people like them, people like us because she represents sin-sick, sin-weary, sin-diseased sinners. People enduring physical deterioration, people enduring emotional isolation, people enduring emotional exhaustion, people enduring physical and personal humiliation, people who endure human condemnation, people who struggle with spiritual confusion, people dominated by futility and frustration, numbing depression. Do you know what she is? This bleeder is what every sinner is. Listen to the parallel of Psalm 38 and the strangely paralleled symptoms communicated by David the sinner that are parallel to this description of this tortured and afflicted bleeder. Verse 3, Psalm 38, there is, says the sinner, David, there is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. My iniquities are gone over my head as a heavy burden. They weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester. Because of my folly, I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all the day. Physical deterioration, emotional devastation, depression, desperation. My loins are filled with burning and there's no soundness in my flesh. I am benumbed. I am badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart, not because I'm afflicted with an unending physical disease, but because I'm tormented and tortured by the consequence of my sin. Lord, all my desire is before Thee. My sighing is not hidden from Thee. My heart throbs, says David the sinner. My strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, even that has gone from me. My eyes are flat. My heart is dead. I'm crushed. I'm beat down. I'm an emotionally distraught. I'm tortured. Why? I'm a sinner, and I'm enduring the consequence of my sin. And get this, verse 11, Psalm 38. My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague and my kinsmen stand afar off. Relational isolation. Why do you and why should you give your all for the one who is all? Because every single sinner is like her. They may be aware of it acutely. They may be unaware of it. I'll tell you this. Many people aren't aware of it. See, this multitude, nobody sees her. Nobody knows she's there. They wouldn't have allowed it. She's in the crowd. Every sinner has the weight and the symptoms and the consequences of sin. 
It's a torturous existence to live in sin. You know some folks who are graphically expressing the reality, the injury, the heartache, the heart wrench, the isolation, the despair. Here's one of the lies of the enemy. You can live in sin and not pay for it. God is not mocked. What you sow, you reap. Sometimes you sow the wind and you reap the whirlwind. People without God enjoy or endure a living death. So why should you give your all because of the consequences of sin to all those who do not enjoy the healing touch of the one-of-a-kind Savior who alone can set people free? Why should you give your all? Because of a Savior like Him, not just for because of people like them. Let me highlight some things that are in this passage I want you to see meditatively. A Savior like Him. Give your all because of a Savior like Him. What kind of a Savior is He? He's a Savior for whom no one is ever lost in the crowd. This is a Savior of individuals. He might be a teacher to the multitudes, but he's a healer of individuals. I want you to feel this. Look at verse 21. A great multitude gathered about him. This starts in chapter 3, verse 20, when it says the crowd was so great, the palas crowd, the, the, the huge number of followers was so great, they couldn't even eat. So strong was the press of the multitude that he would have to get into his boat and push off from the shoreline so that he would not be pressed. This is the crowd, according to Luke's gospel, that was waiting on him. He'd gone across the sea to the east side. He's coming back. They never left. This is a great multitude gathered about him. Verse 24, he went off with him and a great multitude was following him and pressing in on him. Verse 27 says he came, the, the woman came up in the crowd. Verse 30, Jesus turned around and in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? Verse 31, His disciples said, You see the multitude pressing in on you? This is about the crowd. And juxtaposed to the crowd is the individual, a man, an upper crust man, and an outcast woman individuals who, despite the crowd, met a Savior who was willing to interrupt his mission. He stopped and he was redirected by one. He was stopped and he connected to the one despite his pursuits. He doesn't overlook anybody who seeks him. I want to encourage you to give your all because you worship a Savior for whom every individual is important that seeks him. Nobody's lost in the crowd with Jesus Christ. Family may overlook, society may overlook, friends may overlook, but to the seeker, you're somebody valuable enough for the Savior, who is all, to focus his attention on your need. Jairus is a somebody, she's a nobody, he's the upper crust, she's the outcast. But Jesus won't miss them. 
because he cares about every one of them. Well, it's not obvious to everybody, but it's obvious to him. I want you to give your all to a Savior like him because he cares about every individual in the crowd who's seeking him and he finds ways to connect with them. A few years ago, I was traveling home from California with a group of men that had flown out here with me for a board meeting. We were headed back to Birmingham, and we got on a full flight. My secretary had done a great job, got me an aisle exit row, which means good leg room and a great ride. Unfortunately, when I got on the plane, tired, went to put my seat back reclining, it wouldn't move. I was in the first aisle exit row, and you know how that works, I think. You can't recline your seat lest you impede the egress of people in the case of an emergency. So the first aisle of exit has leg room, but you can't recline. Now, I'm a whiner when I fly. And I was thrilled to have an aisle exit row. I was not thrilled for a seat that didn't recline. I wanted to sleep. My buddy, who sat directly behind me in the row that reclined, aisle exit recline row, heard his whining pastor and said, hey, do you want to swap? Well, absolutely, I want to swap. Thank you very much. I need to sleep. He said, I don't, so we swapped. I gave him a big bear hug and settled into my seat, grateful, prepared, reclined fully, grateful for the opportunity to rest. The guy next to me seemed to be in his middle 60s, introduced himself from Cleveland, Ohio, headed back from Los Angeles after a business trip. He asked me to explain about that transition. I told him, and he said, so what do you do? I told him what I did. I said, I'm a pastor. He said, I'm a Jew. He said, uh, I said, I believe in Jesus Christ. He said, I don't. He said, I, I, uh, I am interested, though. Two and a half hours, we flew from L.A. to Houston. Two and a half hours, I rehearsed every Old Testament passage I knew, declaring the identity and the validity of the claims of Jesus Christ. We exchanged business cards. I went home to my office. I got some apologetics books, and I sent Bernie from Cleveland some apologetics books on why he might believe also. He wrote me an email when he received them, and he wrote these words, Harry, that was the most interesting trip I've ever had. Who would have thought on a crowded flight a Jew and a Christian would connect? That was late spring. December, I got a Christmas card from Bernie from Cleveland. The Christmas card I opened, it celebrated the gift of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. You know, on a crowded airplane, there was somebody who was curious. And the Savior of everyone who believes seeks them out even in a crowd. What reminds me of why we ought to give our all for someone who is all is because of people like them, people who are like us, 
because he's a savior who seeks them. Number two, something else I want to highlight before we're done today. Why is he all and why should you give him your all? Number two, because of a savior like him, a savior who even who will even help those who make him their last resort. Let me say that again. Why should you give him all? Because of people like her and a Savior like him, who even though people make him their last resort, he is willing to help them. She had endured much. Why? Notice what it says, verse 26. She had had many physicians. She had spent all she had. Jesus was not her first stop. She was trying to fix her needs. She was trying to solve her problems. She had gone to doctor after doctor after doctor. And as a last desperate resort, she comes to Jesus. And he does not say, hey, you've tried everybody else. I'm not helping. No, it doesn't matter how many other tries you make, how many doctors you go to. Frankly, every sinner goes from doctor to doctor. Dr. Fun, Dr. Folly, Dr. Fortune, Dr. Fame. Trying to deal with the ache and the loss and the illness of a sin-sick soul. I've had people say to me, I've gone too far. That's a lie. God wouldn't want me. I've wasted too many opportunities. I've gone too many other places. Here's what John 6 says. Jesus Christ, the one who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. He won't take me now as a lie. I don't care where you've been, what you've sought, where they've been, what they've sought, how many times they've rejected him or not sought him and sought something else as a solution to their need. He is a Savior who will even help those who make him their last resort. And by the way, it's not perfect faith. It's a perfect Savior. Matter of fact, if you went to a parallel passage, Matthew chapter 9, it's the rehearsal and condensed form of the imperfect faith of Jairus who comes out of desperation, not out of love and regard for a daughter that he loves. This is the woman with the issue of blood, not with courage and boldness, but with apprehension and fear. Then there's two blind men with a partial recognition of who Jesus is, calling him the son of David, but not the son of God. It is not perfect faith. It is a perfect Savior. Love and power awaits those who come to Jesus even though they come imperfectly, even though they come after many efforts at things other than Jesus. I love this statement. This is Charles Spurgeon. He says, consider this. I see this woman with a quivering finger. Poor, emaciated woman with pale and bloodless cheeks. I see a taper finger, one which she held out, and I can see it quiver. However much the finger of your faith may tremble, if it does but touch the hem of the Lord's garment, virtue, virtue will flow from him to you. Now listen to this statement. It's Charles Spurgeon. 
The power is not in the finger which touches, but in the divine Savior who is touched. So long as there is a contact established between you and the almighty power of Jesus' power will travel along even your trembling finger and bring healing to your heart. A strong faith with which rests anywhere but in Jesus is a delusion, but a weak faith which rests alone on Jesus brings a sure salvation. Can you say amen to that? Aren't you glad it's not perfect faith? Aren't you glad that He doesn't turn you away when you seek Him despite all of the places you've gone looking for something other than Him? Aren't you glad that it doesn't matter who you know, who you love, who you care about, who you meet, how many places they've sought satisfaction and solution, that this Savior, our Savior, Christ who is all, is willing to receive them when they come to Him? Aren't you glad there's no place too far for the seeker who desperately comes to Jesus and exercises faith, however imperfect, Aren't you glad for that? Can you say amen to that? Yes? I'm glad. Verse 34, her faith did make her whole, but it was not because of her faith. It was in the one in whom her faith resided. The failure of the physicians underscores that Jesus can succeed when other sources of healing have failed. This is my third point. Why should you give him all? Because he's the kind of Savior for which no one is ever lost in the crowd. He's the kind of Savior who will even help those who make him their last resort. And finally, he's the kind of Savior who can do what no one else can do. Her faith. And by the way, these are a few faith facts revealed in this passage. Faith seeks God. Faith seeks Jesus that brings life change. No matter our position or lack of position, faith seeks God that changes a life. Faith overcomes obstacles. She came despite all of the the challenges. She came anyway. Faith acts. It comes. It kneels. It begs. It reaches. Faith Not faith about Jesus, but faith in Jesus. And I love this. When Jesus turned to her, which he needed to do in order for her to secure a full salvation, not just a physical healing, I want you to look at what it says in verse 33. She fell down before him and watched these words, told him the whole truth. Here's what Luke's gospel says, same context, Luke 8, 47 she declared in the presence of all the reason that she had touched him. She confessed, she told her story, she unveiled her heart, she sought him, she overcame obstacles to get to him, she acted and pursued him, and when she met him and was confronted by him, she shared her story, she confessed her reality, and her desperate faith saved her. Desperate faith drives those who are transformed. Let me tell you what doesn't save people. Casual faith. Intellectual faith. The faith that transforms people is a desperate in Jesus only faith. And he's a savior, faith in him, a savior who can do what no one else can do. 
what no man can do for another man, what no man can do for himself, no matter what his position or means, that's Jairus. Jesus can do and is willing to do for anyone, anywhere. This is the woman who is that person who will come to him, will reach out to him by faith. As I said, the failure of the physicians underscores that Jesus can succeed when other sources of healing have failed. Jesus has just exercised a tortured man who no one could control, verse 4, chapter 5. And now in chapter 5, this woman, he cures someone no one else could cure. And he will raise up a little girl in a few verses that no one else could raise or heal. The weeping turned to laughing because Jesus is a king and a savior. He can do what no one else can do. Jesus does not direct you to the means for your solution. He is the means to every situation. Jesus can do what no one else can do, no matter how difficult, how afflicted, how long-lived, how complicated, how overwhelming, how inconceivable. No therapist can do what Jesus can do. No medicine can do what Jesus can do. Only Jesus can do what needs to be done. That's why I love that. It says it's a personal power. Verse 30, Jesus perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth. He's the one alone who has the capacity. It's his power. The power that created the universe is the power he possesses to transform a soul, to heal a heart, to change a life, to heal a body. She just touched him. She grabbed him out of desperation, not sophisticated faith, but transforming faith. I don't have anywhere else to go. This is my last option. And he doesn't turn her away. He transforms her. I met this woman for the first time when I went to her home after her husband had taken her life, his life. met this woman the first time when I went to the home because her husband had taken his life. We buried him, and for the next 10 years, she drowned her pain in alcohol. Her daughters loved her and tried to deliver her, sent her to rehab this and rehab that. I was called to the hospital a decade after the death of her husband. She was in ICU. She had overdosed because she was done. She was tired, and she'd had enough. I met her doctor in the waiting area with the family, and he said to the girls, there's no hope for your mom. She's done too much to her body for her body to recover absent a miracle. So I went in to see her. And I said to her very honestly, I said, there's not a lot of hope physically. But there is hope spiritually and eternally. She said, I've done too much. I've gone too far. My life's a wreck. I'm not worth anything. I've never done this, and I've not done it since. 
but I told her she was worth something to God, and I reached down and I kissed her on the forehead. Lady about a decade older than I was in the throes of the end of her life. And I said, you are valuable to him. And he can do what no one else can do. She cried, I prayed, and I left. She recovered from that overdose. She called. We met with another pastor. And she walked through the torturous life that had been hers. She told the whole truth. She told her whole story. And she received an unrivaled grace. On the Sunday I preached my last sermon in Birmingham a year and a half ago, as I walked through the congregation to the exit doors, there stood a woman not with dead eyes but with bright eyes. There stood a woman not with a heavy countenance, bowed down with despair and hopelessness, but a woman with a countenance that was light with life. And we hugged. And we celebrated a God who can do anything for anyone, no matter where they are. He's a great Savior. He can do what no one else can do. He is all. He cares for all. Give him your all. Father, thank you for the morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge. These descriptions, these pictures, these vivid examples that are meant to inspire and motivate our heart. These declarations that describe your capacity. Lord, would you move us as if we were there? Would you move us as, this, as if this were our relative and friend? Would you cause us to be concerned about the con condition of those that are around us? And would you cause us to be agents for a Savior who cares and who can? Thank you for Jesus, the first and the best, the greatest of all. Faith in him can change everything. Thank you for your grace, in Jesus' name, amen.